Good evening, and this is In the Back Room with your host, Mr. Shank and... Mr. Woods. And today we're going to be talking to you about Japan and Mongolia. Temendi Kalsa as Neskire. So, with, uh, let's start with Mongolia first. The Mongol Horde. And these are nomadic herders. And what's a nomadic herder? Yeah, so if we're talking about uh, this phrase, nomadic herder, we should break it down. So a nomad uh, is an individual who doesn't have a permanent settled home. Uh, I think it's, I think you put it best whenever you talk to your students. You want to you explain yeah, that? Yeah, they are mad because they have no home. Yeah, uh, essentially. So they're, they're people that travel. Uh, and herders would travel more than perhaps other nomads because they have to take care of their flock of whatever animals, in the case of the Mongols, I believe it's primarily horses uh, and, like, sheep. I think like sheep. I think even goats, goats as well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, you have to take them to new pastures to, mm-hmm. to graze, and so they're on the move frequently herding yeah. these animals. Eating that grass. Got to get the grass. Mm-hmm. So the time frame you have is 1206 to 1368 A.D. Mm-hmm. We've taken quite a jump since China in time here, mm-hmm. but... But that's, we're still talking geographically the same region. I mean, the Mongols are from what we would today call Mongolia, or the steppes to the north of, like, the Gobi Desert, north of China. We just stepped up from China. Took a step up. <laughs> Took a step up. Step below Russia. <laughs> so. Uh, so, yeah, they're, they're herding, and um, the, that's pretty much their entire lifestyle is driven on those horses. You know, you have, they're eating, sleeping, fighting, from age three, they're on those horses. Yeah. That's a huge. I think each one uh, has four apiece. You know, warrior right. would have four at least, which is crazy. And I mean, you you've got to take into account that they have to feed these animals and take care of them. I mean, they're their their best friends essentially. Yeah, you spend your life in horseback. Well, horses life's a lot less. Yes, true. Pat. What's the ratio? Because the dogs like every seven years, a horse is like. Yeah, I don't know. I, I was listening to a podcast about this one time. Actually, where it's <laughs> ironically, <laughs> but it, it talks about how, with the exception of like certain mammals, it tends to scale up. So, like the larger you are, the less longer, time. The or longer. The longer. Oh. In in some cases, in some mm-hmm. cases, like humans are weird in that. But like you take elephants, elephants tend to live for a long time versus like dogs that don't. That's why uh, Loch Ness and Bigfoot are still yeah, around. That's right. Although I don't know, I don't know where like like tortoises figure into that equation. Yeah, it's they live like a hundred some yeah. years. Yeah. So I don't, I don't remember who I was listening to discuss it, but it has something to do with just like they can measure the like your your esophagus, and it had something to do oh, with wow. like the, the esophageal line length. And yeah. I don't know. I, I didn't, I so understood it while I listened to it. I don't yeah. understand it now thinking back. But it's not as obviously as long as a, a human. No, certainly not. So, but there's the ratio is for every one human, there's 13 horses in Mongolia in the, in the steppes, which right. is crazy. And today in modern, so who knows what it was back yeah, then. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that it was probably greater. You would have had one less people uh, mm-hmm. and, and two the horses would have been more of a necessity then than they are today oh, though absolutely I'm sure yeah. they're important today just based on the like the way mongolia is settled there and the horses too are a lot they're not like the big giant horses they're like more like i mean i don't say medium-sized horses or yeah, whatever maybe. i don't know what the specific breed is though i i remember something i was reading something about like how the difference between like say a a European war horse in the Middle Ages versus like uh, the the Scandinavian 
short, like short-legged horses that had like this extra gait, and so they could move at a different pace. Mm-hmm. Just the like the inverse of the plow horses that would have been used by the peasantry. You know, yeah, just a different uh, bred for a different purpose. Mm-hmm. That's just very interesting. We have uh, Mongolia being the second largest empire ever, if we're talking territorially. Mm-hmm. Um, the first would be Great Britain, yes. which that doesn't ha- happen until the, well, more <laughs> modern era, if you want to say it like that. You know, we were a part of that empire here in America um, until we gained our independence, but a lot of the colonization we see in the world today was caused by Great Britain. Sun never sets on the British Empire. It's true. So it's true. Say. But we didn't ever figure out what was the population-wise, though, the largest no, empire. No. I could probably, if you, wanna, if you want to talk about uh, the, the founder there, I'll see if I can figure that out. Yes. Uh, so the founder of the Mongolian Empire, the Mongols had always kind of, you know, been there, those people, but you have um, Genghis Khan or Temujin, king, um, kind of coming from, you know, uh, kind of like, well, <laughs> the underdog. I mean, basically shouldn't have, should, but shouldn't have been anything. And kind of, you know, rises to power, and you have between 1162 and you have 1229, uh, rises to power and creates and unites the Mongol people in what we know as, say, Mongolia and China and so forth, and starts just ravaging the countryside. Um, and just, just in a limited amount of time, because they're so quick on those horses, um, was able to, again, get that second largest territorially, square mileage, uh, the largest empire in the world. So I've actually got an addition to that. They are ranked number one for the largest, um, like, contiguous empire, like as in all parts of it being connected. Oh, like the British okay. Empire, how you've got colonies, uh, so it's not physically connected. The, the Mongolian Empire was actually physically connected. Okay. So they are the they are the number one largest contiguous empire that the world has seen, um, and then landmass next I've got like Russia the Russian Empire, mm-hmm. but as far as people go, what I'm what I'm reading here is it's still still the British Empire really? being the being the largest it makes a little more sense it's modern right you know and then like I don't even to be honest I don't even see Rome on this list of the top ten. You've got like the Abbasid and Umayyad caliphates. Um, you've got the Portuguese Empire, but I—I I mean, Rome isn't even on the list. Yeah. Of top ten, so. Okay. I found that interesting. Uh, yeah. So main thing from him is that Genghis Khan or Genghis, um, Genghis. and they Genghis Khan. <laughs> they uh, they revere him as almost like a god over there. It's quite the different. It's quite different in the West where we we view him as like this you know barbarian who is just you know destroying the countryside and placing genocide in an entire group of people, but over in Mongolia. He's like George Washington on steroids, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's just different. It's just interesting. You talk, did you talk about how they, what, what they come to know his like group as is that Khanate of the Golden Horde? Uh, I did not talk about that so, yet. So, yeah, the Khanate of the Golden Horde, or uh, Kingdom of the Royal Camp. And I, I was as I was researching some stuff for this podcast, it, it came up that the word horde, as used by the Mongols, is actually ascribed to them by the Russians, which is the group that interacted primarily with the Golden Horde um, as Orda, which just means horde. So that's where 
that word kind of evolves from. Is that Cyrillic? Isn't it in like Lord of the Rings? It's like there's a, they call it the Horde as well, like yeah. the Horde of Orcs or something yeah, like oh, that. Oh, and, and don't forget World of Warcraft. Maybe that's that's what Warcraft. I'm. So you have the alliance. That's what I'm Orc. thinking of. Okay, yeah. I knew I knew I had heard that term before, well before I even learned anything. Well, of the that Mongols. was that was our our missing one of our missing podcasters, uh, the great uh, Gregarius Gujanicus. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. That is right. <laughs> um, so with Genghis Khan. Um, Killing over forty million people in his lifetime—not him personally, just he's—and we can talk about this. Mm-hmm. How this is uh, in—I think I described it earlier today as indirect uh, uh, collateral damage, right. indirect collateral damage, where he, yes, he did not personally kill four hundred million or forty million people, but he caused. Hey, you guys, go over there, destroy that village, kill everyone there, or he ends up. I'm going to. You know, I end up killing your entire family, and then you're this little baby that's left on the the hillside. Well, he didn't actually do anything physically to you, but now you don't have anybody to feed you, take care of you. You're going to die. So it's that secondary cause that's really... Yeah, the responsible for the deaths of 40 million people. Right, right. So we have to always, in history, always look and see where not just the initial cause of what happens, but the aftermath of, and that's also counted in there. Yeah, I mean, that's that's where we get into, like, later, we, I guess we could talk about this, but, like, war crimes later. I mean, like, how many people did Adolf Hitler directly kill? Mm-hmm. I don't even know if any. Maybe during his service in World War One, but I don't maybe. think so. He was a runner. He was a, but... Yeah, uh, like a messenger. So I would hazard to guess none. But responsible for Yeah, responsible for the deaths of millions. Um, yeah. Add into that, like, figures like Stalin or arguably Kissinger, right? Secretary of State under, was that Nixon? I think, I think so, yeah. Uh, Vietnam, end of Vietnam. So I think that's Nixon. End of Vietnam, yeah, 76. Ford and Nixon. That era, yeah. Yeah, in there, in there. But. Uh, well, with the Mongolians, uh, well, before we move on, with that uh, 40 million, one in 200 people carry his DNA, um, and that stems from, you know, once they would kill everyone in the, the village, if you, it basically, if you didn't surrender immediately, they okay, everyone's dead, and they would more than likely uh, take the women and then do whatever. A lot of his generals, too, have the same mm-hmm. DNA. Like, the DNA is, like, 1 in 200 as well. I mean, he has, like, a lot of his descendants, or direct descendants from, like, a, an official marriage, but the, the number of officers under them that are, you know, the bastard children of mm-hmm. would be... Yeah, say incalculable. So, obviously not in here, in this area, you're going to have one in every 200 people, but you go over into Asia, you go into Mongolia... There's a high chance somebody's carrying their DNA. Do they know? More than likely not. Yeah. Um, but there's just that that probabilities that that high one in every two hundred people. Yeah, I would imagine if you examine just the region that was formerly under his control, I, I'm sure that proportion is way higher. Way out, like like one in two, if not. Yeah, that one in two hundred is in the world. That's yeah, not just in right. Mongolia. That's in the world. Right. But I just always found that kids see that and they're like, "Wait, what?" I was like, "Yeah." Yeah. <laughs> There's a, I think there's a TED, uh, like a TED Ed video about that too, mm-hmm. where they and they kind of debate the, like the nature of Genghis Khan. Was he good or was he evil? Well, that's the, the TED Ed is put him on trial. Yeah. yeah, that's what the kids were watching. Some of them today and yesterday. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a good. One. Um, after the uh, yeah, it is really good because I mean you can also make the case that um, like geographically like just killing all those people agriculturally you know that they affected the landscape of Mongolia drastically changed that for generations mm-hmm. to come, affecting even to, to this day. Yeah. And that was, you know, 800 years ago. 
But moving on, um, the Mongol Empire is, uh, they have what's rare in ancient times, mm-hmm. which is freedom of, of religion. religion. Yeah. Toleration yeah. of other religions. Because I, I believe the Mongols had their own kind of nature-based faith. But they were quick to adapt to other religions and yeah. quick to accept other religions, not just accept them, but you know fully adopt them. You see that with uh, the the Yuan Dynasty of China, which is a Mongol-operated dynasty, but they venerated ancestors the same as the Chinese and accepted Confucianism as a philosophy, the same as the Chinese that they were conquering essentially. Mm-hmm. It's that uh, cultural diffusion that is mm-hmm. so important. I mean, when you have an empire that big, you have to be able to accept because uh, you're stretching all the way. Um, through different continents and different regions, you're going to encounter Islam, Buddhism, Christianity. Uh, just the list goes on and on. You know, um, and are... I'm, I'm pretty sure that shortly after the like siege of Baghdad, was at 12, 1258, I'm pretty sure shortly after that they adopt Islam in that region mm-hmm. as, as their yeah. faith too, just because it, I mean, it's easily fit. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, which is, yeah, I said, which is rare. You know, we had the Persians, if we were trying to like cross-reference here a little bit and just compare, uh, they're another empire that had religious tolerance. And you're going to be more successful if you're more tolerant of people. Mm-hmm. That's just in, in general, whether it's an empire or just personally, yeah. you're going to go a lot farther if you can you can tolerate, hey, I don't, I don't necessarily believe in what you believe in, but you go ahead, practice what you want. Just pay me some taxes. Um, but that's typically um, how it goes. And that's one of the, you know, our... Uh, five basic freedoms, you know, the, the Bill of Rights, um, well, it's the first one, but it's in the Bill of Rights, mm-hmm. you know, besides free speech, I think freedom of religion is pretty, it's, it's pretty high up there as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and I, it was Aristotle that said it's the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain an idea without accepting it, yeah. so, I mean, that that's tolerance in a nutshell. Yeah, no, it really is, that's, you don't have to like it, you don't have to um, agree with it, but again, you don't just, have to dismiss it out of hand. Right, you can, you can tolerate and listen to someone else's viewpoint. Well, especially too, because I, I say this to my uh, students. I said, "Well, there's there's been over four thousand religions, um, ever, and one of us maybe is right, all of us are right, or none of us are. Just stick to your whatever you do, your own faith, and just keep it at that." Yeah, yeah. That's so, cool. um. Safe and secure trading in the West um, along the Silk Road, right? Right, yeah, just that, I mean, the the fact that the empire covered that territory does instill a system of, or a feeling of security, because you know that there is an occupying force that's attempting to keep brigands and bandits off of the road and, and make trade more readily available, because it, it helps them. The, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the better the economy of their conquered territory, uh, the more they can get in taxes. Yeah, it's you don't want to be blocking trade in, in any in any regard or shutting it down, because once you do that, one, you do stop cultural diffusion, and, and two, you're going to economically start to break down. It's not going to be immediate, but it will definitely happen. Yeah, I mean, that's how the Mongols operated in Russia. Russia was essentially a tributary state of the Mongol Empire until they said, hey, you know, we're going to stop paying. And that, that's kind of a mark of the later end of the the Mongols' empire, too, that it was a bloodless conflict. When Russians finally, you know, had enough military strength to be able to pose a real resistance to the Mongols, and they said, hey, you know, we're, we're done, we're breaking off, uh, you know, any kind of, uh, maybe not trade relations, but, but this tributary system, Mongols were just like, okay, and left to go find someone who's more... Um, 
I don't know, more uh, accepting of their leadership or their their overlording. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That was uh, hold on, that's for the for the sake of accuracy. Was it Ivan the Third? Ivan the Third that uh, throws off the Mongols. Yes. Okay. Ivan the Third. Ivan the Great. Yeah. Because Ivan the Terrible came next with Ivan right. Fourth. Mm. I V. You know is his yeah. nickname. <laughs> um, so uh, educate the masses and this. <laughs> And I, yeah, I make the joke. This is not just educating large people. Um, this is educating everyone. So that in itself is just in, it's incredibly um, it's admirable for mm-hmm. sure because mm-hmm. a more educated population, and we've been, we'll hit this theme throughout, is a much better society. I mean, sure. I, I drilled on that today even in class just because the question, yeah, we're, we're reviewing you know, the material that we've already covered and, and talking about the uh, test and it's there's a there was a sense of you know why does this matter why should I pay attention that kind of thing and it's like you know if you if you drill into the individual civilizations that we've already talked about let alone the ones we will explore one of the core tenets for their belief of success was to have an educated people unless they're a totalitarian regime or some autocracy education was important and so we see that. We even here in, in the Mongol Empire, we'll see it in Japan, we see it in Greece, we see it in Rome, everywhere we can think of, even Charlemagne, right? The the idea of having an educated people is important. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's the reason we have this egalitarian-style educational system in the United States that we do, where we try to provide an equal education for everyone. I say, do you want to... Egalitarian probably might be over some of them. Uh, equal, equitable, yeah. um, mm-hmm. even to all, something like that. But but that that concept that we should have everyone educated is because we're all citizens. I mean, we all hold the same level of power, the vote. You know, it doesn't matter how... Whether you hold a PhD or a high school diploma, you have the same power to affect government as anyone else mm-hmm. that holds the status of citizen. Even the person running, he yeah. only gets one vote. Yeah, he only can vote just for as much as once. me or you. Yeah. Uh, the power of voting. But um, I see you drew a nice little uh, yurt. Yes. You want to explain the yurt. the yurt? So the yurt is like a, a mobile home, basically, for the, for the uh, Mongols. But, I mean, you have to consider the fact that they spent a great deal of their time on horseback. So whatever they did carry with them had to be a temporary form of shelter. And it's not like they would have used these every night. You're not going to make camp every night. But when you do make camp, or, or right, the, the horde gathers together, you have to have somewhere to stay if you're going to stay for a few days. So these would be, you know, portable um, homes, essentially. Not even necessarily meaning you have to carry all of the pieces. You take the canvas or, or furs or hide or whatever you're going to stretch over to make the, the canopy, almost like a like a Native American teepee or something mm-hmm. in, of that sense where... The, the wood, the sticks that you're going to use to form the frame for it can come from anywhere that you are that can be cut and set up. And then it's, that's all it is. The floor is done in furs or um, some, some type of hides and the same with the shell of it. Yeah. Um, and according to, and I don't, know if, I don't know how much historical evidence there is on this. I've never really done any more research on it other than hearing it. <laughs> on the history of yurts. Uh, on the history of yurts, right. <laughs> uh, my, my, my level of um, scholarship on that's low. Yeah. But uh, I know that... <laughs> yeah, uh, it would not surprise me. 
But I, I know that the the story is that that Genghis Khan's yurt was actually pulled by oxen across his empire, so he didn't even have to tear down his yurt. I mean, so the dude crazy. rode in an RV when everybody else was stuck with campers. You know, like yeah, this is crazy. <laughs> it is. It is crazy. But that uh that concludes uh, the Mongols. So we'll shift our focus to Japan. With the symbol and the flag being uh, that red circle with the white um, overlay, mm-hmm. um, which uh, this past summer I took a group of students uh, to Japan, and that was uh, quite an experience for sure. So I'm I have, I'm gonna say I'm well versed, but I'm I have more of a, an insight than um, most on this. But uh, the geography of it, so you know we have uh, it's an archipelago which we learned today in class, means that it's a chain of islands. And the four main ones are Honshu, Kyushu, Shikoku, and Hokkaido. Did I pronounce that correctly, or did I a little bit off? I mean, you pronounced it better than I would have, <laughs> and, and more close to what we heard, you know, uh, through the pronunciation channeling of mm-hmm. it than, than I could mimic. Because I, I usually, just for the simplicity and the sake of my my Western accent, just say Hokkaido, Honshu, Kishu, and Shikoku. But yeah. I guess that those U's are more drawn out. Yeah, they're, the U's are longer, Kyushu, Kyushu. Shikoku. So yeah, they're more they're more drawn out. But it just because there's four main islands doesn't mean that's all there is. Because we have there's seven. <laughs> there's just no yeah. There's someone that was like today, they're like I asked them, Hey, uh, how many how many islands? And they're like, Okay, there's one. Like now a little higher. There's three. Like uh, a little higher. There's six. Lower. Five? Lower than that. Four. I was like just going like drawn out. They were all so excited. It's like the worst game of Battleship. It was really bad. (laughs) Shoot every square around the enemy ship. (laughs) But um, you have uh, Tokyo, which is everyone kind of knows Tokyo. Did you know how populated Tokyo was? I didn't realize how populated it was. I assume it's extremely dense. It's like 30 million people. I, I didn't it's the it's top three I think really yeah I, I which that blew my mind I didn't I mean it was crowded but I didn't realize that when I looked that up when I got home I was like oh man yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, on the main island uh, Honshu you have uh, Kyoto which would be about uh, what you how would you describe it and it's in the middle of that island but it'd be yeah. on the eastern side yeah yeah it's kind of like the I don't know if you would refer to that as a uh, a peninsula on the island, but it's kind of like at the base of that that southern southwestern peninsula. Mm, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how I how I would describe it other than you know southwest of Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then um, as you go west, uh, we took a bullet train from Kyoto, or sorry, from Tokyo to Kyoto uh, west, and it took us about two hours. And a bullet train moves about two hundred miles an hour. Oh man, those those bullet trains! I bet that was crazy. It doesn't even feel like you're moving. You're like, oh, going 200 miles an hour, and And that's those are magnetic, right? Magnetic, yeah. Crazy power of science, folks. (laughs) 
got to got to study science for sure. I just remember being in Italy in like with uh, Gregarius Gujonicus. Oh, yes. It was going like seventy miles an hour, and it felt like we're gonna fly off the tracks. Yeah. Like we're all gonna die. And then here in uh, you know the technology advances in Japan, where it's like all right, we're going two hundred miles an hour. And I don't even know I'm moving. Yeah. It was just really cool. It was set up. Crazy. Um, the Magna Lev. Mm-hmm. And then you have uh, Osaka being a little bit uh, south of Kyoto, southwest of Kyoto. Um, the other islands that you have, the smaller ones, uh, Shikoku and Kyushu, those would be on the western, uh, well, I guess like southwestern sides if you're holding, yeah, be on the southern regions. They're much, much smaller than the mainland. Um, and then you have the Hokkaido and the very north end. And then, you know, just like 6,848 other islands. Wow, yeah, pretty much, yeah. And there's probably new islands popping up, too. Yeah. Um, so, do you want to explain that you have the, the sea and the... Right, so we've, so we've got, on, on this little map, if you look at the attached graphic for this podcast on, on my website, um, you've got the Sea of Japan to the, I guess, west, northwest of Japan's mm-hmm. main island. And then the Pacific Ocean to the to the east, um, and then if what what I don't have displayed on this, so, so if you're looking at a, a world map, right, Japan is going to be kind of like off the southern coast of South Korea, and like to the south and east of South Korea, and like in there with China, and even I think well, I don't know, not directly but bordering Russia too in a way. Um, so a lot of the the culture that we're going to talk about would be recognizable, like to what we've studied with China because it's how it gets there. I mean, the culture progresses from China through the Korean Peninsula and to the islands of Japan. Yeah, it definitely, um, they definitely borrow a lot from them for sure. I seem to remember, I don't know where I remember it from, but, but a myth about the, uh, the islands of Japan being formed from like blood dripping from a katana. I don't know if that's actually true as a myth or if it's just like a Westernese myth of, that's true. That's true. And I do remember something too about like the importance of the sun being tied to the goddess of Matarasu, mm-hmm. um, because she's kind of like a chief sun deity. Um, and then like you said, a Matarasu. Yeah, I, I that's think, how I would. Pronounce I think it. I said a Manarasu. <laughs> well, there's the Johnstown coming out. It's a little bit Western PA coming I, out. I think it's a Matarasu. Well, and makes and no I don't. Sense. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right either. It's just, it sounds better than Matarasu. And then I think there's like a. Uh, like a, uh, so I don't know if I'm even right on this, but I know there's like a, in in the mythology there's a dragon that dwells in the sea and it's like Watasumi, but if you actually look at the way it's spelled, it's like tsunami. Mm. Like so, I wonder. I'm I'm sort of wondering if the the tsunamis, the tidal waves, are effects from the movement of this dragon dwelling in the sea. That would make sense. Like yeah, I don't I don't know, but uh, that's just me putting it together. That made, like I said, that makes sense. I don't. Seems right. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. There's like a, a god of um, like the tempests and stuff too, but his name is is escaping me. I I know it's like a brother or cousin of Amaterasu, but I mm-hmm. don't know. Uh, maybe I can look it up while we while we move on to to movingon.com. That's right, away from the mythology and more to the important religions that we're going to see crop up in in Japan. Correct. Uh, so the main religion of Japan is Shinto. Shinto. 
And this is uh, the way of Kami, you know, divine spirits um, inhabit everything, you know, whether it be in a mountain or in this tree or in a person, a dog, an animal, there's these divine, divine meaning godlike spirits in everything. And um, it's similar to animism, you know, like I said, spirits in, in everything. And when I was in Japan, they they didn't really they took religion you know semi seriously I guess to a degree but it's not it was more of <laughs> this is funny because a lot of them when they were explaining to us the reason why they would go into these shrines and they would um, you know do like a, a ceremonial prayer or something mm-hmm. like that it was because of a test ah it was legitimately because of a test education like, once again yeah folks. because they knew like how important these tests were t- to their success later in life whether it be something small like you know at a very young age maybe like elementary or something mm-hmm. but obviously the higher you get the more it's on the line and you said that that like the prayer is very ritual based oh yeah there, there's stylized. a there's a certain way that you you have like the the purifying water mm-hmm. and before you even go up to um essentially you know you maybe toss a few coins but into there um before you even get up there you would essentially have like a like a little like water uh, it's like a long stick at the very end of it they have a little bit of uh opening for the water you scoop it in and then there's a certain way you have to like put it on the from the right to the left, from the left to the right on your um, hands with this cup and pour it onto there. And then you have to like just put a little bit on your mouth then too. And then um, make sure when you drain it that you hold it straight up so the water drains down your um, hand into your wrist and down into the the rest of it. And that's a way of, like, purifying it for the next person, essentially, um, and cleaning it. And then once you do that, you go back up to the, like, the altar or whatever you want to call it, and you, um, there's different ones that they have, but, you know, they might have one where there's, like, ash, essentially, or, like, incense or something like that. And you would kind of do a kind of, like, here, here. Not like a cross, but almost, like, you know, over one shoulder, over the other, and then do like a bow, and then kind of uh, move on. Yeah. And so forth. But it just depends. There's a lot of different things. You know, we did a lot of different, uh, like almost like cultural assimilation rituals when we were there. I I know a lot of Japanese culture is very ritual based. Mm-hmm. It's very. I mean, like even just looking at just from my own interest, looking at like how swordsmanship is done. Uh, with with the katana, like the way you draw it, the way you hold it, how, mm-hmm. everything is very ritual based and very every movement is it's almost like choreo. It's dancing. It's really mm-hmm. like as opposed to you know earlier stuff that we would have talked about or like medieval swordsmanship. It's just a brawl basically. In Japan, it's it's dueling later in the in the period, but it's all almost like a dance. It's yeah. very choreographed in a way. It's um, there's moves and counter moves and there's a reason for everything they do. There there's a purpose, as, you know, what something represents or why they do it this way or that way, which I found very fascinating for sure. Um, but oh, then, sorry, just I I found I found him. Oh, you did nice, <laughs> Susano. 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 And it is it is a Matarasu's brother. He's a a storm god of the summer. Stormtrooper. Stormtrooper. <laughs> Captain Phasma. <laughs> man. Um. So with uh, with Shintoism, and you may have done this on your vocabulary, you probably brought up an image of it. Kind of looks like a. How would you describe that? Like a. <laughs> it's almost like a like like <laughs> so like the the capital 
or, or uh, I was I'm gonna, sorry, like, pie. Like, I was thinking pie. Yeah, I was thinking pie, like a capital T with like, I yeah. It, so you basically have just a few. I know when I have my drive. When I have a driveway one day, I'm having a Shinto shrine ready. Yeah. For sure. Um, I don't care how I have to have it built, but I'm having it. Yeah, it's it's like the capital variant of pie. So without like the swishes at the bottom, but like the the crossbar with mm-hmm. two pillars is. Which it's very fitting to for this, especially because our table is uh, the colors of this. And I specifically had the table that we have here in the back room. Custom ordered. Custom ordered from Japan. They brought it in, uh, shipped it out, uh, free of charge, obviously. I mean, they, they've heard our podcast. How oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just millions upon billions. Trillions. Yeah, we're making up new numbers here. Yeah. Um, with listeners. And the Tori is spelled T-O-R-I-I, and it's essentially when you enter this gateway, because you go underneath it, and they'll have it in, whether it be in an entranceway into, like, a, you know, a park, or um, you have it going through a water, you're entering a, you're cleansing your spirit, and you're almost entering into, like, the world of the gods, spirit world, almost, when you're going through. And when you're in Japan, you no matter what you do, you're going through one of these, because right. they're... They're under uh, a car, you'll go under it with it, or you'll go under, we went to the one that was uh, like 10,000 shrines. In like, you're just going, you're hiking to the top of this hill, and there's shrine after shrine, these Tory shrines, shrine, 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 it's just like, you're overloaded with shrines. Well, I mean, when you think about the, the animistic style of belief, like where spirits inhabit everything, mm. you, you, you require that cleansing everywhere you go. It's true. I mean... These arches are far more important than the McDonald's arches. I mean, we're not talking about cleansing your spirit for a Big Mac. We're talking about gods here, folks. <laughs> You're cleansing more than just your spirit with one of them. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Wash everything clean. Oh, man. Uh, but, yeah, you, you'll, once you see it, you'll automatically know. And hopefully, um, uh, in due time, we're going to have, outside of my room, we'll have the Tory arch. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they enter in, their spirits will be cleansed. There needs to be some cleansing. <laughs> So uh, that would bring us to Zen Buddhism. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so my understanding of Zen Buddhism, and I'm by no means a scholar here either, but it's it's the um, kind of blending of the Buddhist traditions as they progress through China, kind of mixing with a, a bit of Taoism here and a bit of uh, uh, Shinto when it arrives in Japan, and it's 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 Buddhist philosophy of the the Mahayana or Mahayana flavor of it. Where they, you know, regard Buddha as a as a divine, mm-hmm. um, and and it's more focused on, I guess, peace. Like you see the Zen gardens, like the the the, the raking of like the sand and everything mm-hmm. like that. That's so it's very much about peace and and kind meditation. of meditation. Like, yeah, yeah. So I think it focuses more on that than just kind of the the path of suffering. Would be my understanding. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so they they just mix these kind of they'll eventually mix these religions together. So. You know, you ask the state religion of Japan, and it's, yeah, it's, yeah it's, if it's, there is one, if I mean, there is one, that's the thing. It's like Shinto is like the it's unique to Japan, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say that it's state. a state religion. I, I I don't even know if they technically would have. One. I don't think they would either. I, but I, I, just, mean, I feel like with just the the mixing, like they they are wondrously uh, able to take the good and isolate it for the benefit of their society. Which is what um, a lot of, well, I'm going to say a lot, but you can do with any religion. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to believe in the entire religion of karma to believe in karma. You know, right. for the entire religion of Hinduism to believe in karma um, or Buddhism. I think, where, I think 
you know, without getting into too much theology there, I think that's where most religions struggle because you've got a doctrine of belief. It's mm-hmm. hard to isolate any one part of it because to, to say, okay, well, this is good and this is bad, well, then it, it, it can't be both. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because if, if it all comes in one package, you can't have one part without the rest. And right. I think I think the, you know, the kind of the philosophies that we talk about are the way around that where you can isolate you know the moral good things from any kind of maybe religious doctrine associated with it Mm -hmm. you know so i mean to each their own for sure yeah but i I think it's it's interesting how that concept is able to be applied with with shinto where it's you know it's almost in what you find in it you know Mm -hmm. no i definitely 100 percent uh agree with you um, is that where you're trying to go with from India to China to yeah. Korea to Japan? Yeah, I ran out of paper. I <laughs> saw that. If you look at the notes, that's why Japan <laughs> drops down so much below Korea. Oh, like yeah, slip. I mean, it's the progression of, well, just culture in general, but mm-hmm. the Buddhism and, and then just belief in, or uh, not belief, but just ideas in general from China for sure. But they, that eastward march started by Ashoka, right? That That spread of culture tied to the religion that gets mm-hmm. spread of Buddhism, but you know, makes its way through China and, and Korea and to Japan by extension of that. Yeah, definitely a big advocate for uh, culture spreading. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, after religion, we can bring this to uh, the last section here, which is the Japanese feudalism. Yeah, the social structure of the feudal period. Um, so you've got, you know, you have this figure of the emperor at the top, though I don't know how much power the emperor always had. I know, I know through much of, of it, there's that cultural respect, the, almost like a filial piety mm. type respect for the emperor. But I think that as far as like real wieldable power, I think later in Japanese culture that falls more on the shoguns as, as kind of feudalism breaks down, um, at the end of that, that it's not, it's, it's a, like a civil war that breaks out in Japan. Um, I, you know, I can't place the, the time period. I would say near the Heian period of Japan, but the civil war period of Japan where there's, you know, different factions warring against one another and, you know, the emperor, there, there's essentially two of them. And so there's less power between them. So that these warlord figures of the shogun kind of take over, um, and then, of course, you have below the, the shogun, you have, like, the daimyo and the, the samurai. And then, of course, the peasants, right? Down at the very bottom. This is, folks, this is where ninjas actually come from. Ninjas were just peasant farmers fighting back against oppression from samurai. They're, they are real, though they're not as cool as the, uh, the turtles. They make them out <laughs> to be, right? The, uh, Full circle, we were talking about turtles earlier. <laughs> yeah, talk about the, the circularity of it, right? <laughs> Um, yeah, and with uh, with that, did you talk about? Sorry, I was looking at. Um, <laughs> you can't let a word on Google Chrome. I'm assuming, because I was trying. To, I was trying to yeah, find. I think it was Google Docs. Yeah, it's not. It's not trying to do it uh, because uh, I was trying to look for the actual like SOL on the on the DOE DOE website. Mm. Um, they had. I thought I saw they mentioned something about like the emperor and like almost worshiping the emperor. Yeah, I'm, oh, I'm sure there is like 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 that reverential respect given yeah. to the emperor because we see that. I mean, you saw that even in World War 2. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that 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 
respect is there. I think that the breakdown in Japanese society was during that civil war. Like the emperor sort of lost control of what was going on. Lost the swag. More to yeah. I mean, it fell down to more like local leaders who could actually yeah. provide tangible protection for the people. Mm-hmm. He lost that uh, country swag. That country swag. <laughs> um, but uh, Bushido. Is there a code of honor, and what is this similar to in the West? So in, in the West, we have what's called chivalry, which is kind of a, a, a similar code of honor among the warrior class of knights in, in feudal Europe. Um, and, and much of it's the same, although I will say that I, I find Bushido to be more um, personal, because it's more focused on you as an individual rather than how you should serve God and how you should serve um, your lord and women and, and all of that, it's more about your relationship with the world, I feel mm-hmm. like, with Bushido. If you want to talk about some of the tenets of Bushido, you're more familiar than I. Yeah, um, and these are these just great uh, characteristic traits in anybody, you know, and this is, you're having integrity, uh, respect, courage, honor, compassion, loyalty, and honesty. You know, um, how many of us can say that at all times we are, our integrity is always the best. We're always respectful. We're always courageous and honorable and compassionate and loyal and honest and everything like that. We try to be, but, you know, that you're looking at the epitome of this, you know. Um, this is like the, the rap, but like the adult version and yeah. very, very yeah. strict. And, and I mean, it's an honor code, and to like violate that honor code came with penalty. I mm-hmm. mean, to to bring dishonor wasn't just on yourself. Ronin. Yeah, yeah. The the Ronin, the masterless samurai. Right? The, uh, the, I'm sorry, I didn't even see you. So, the, you, you yeah, that. yeah. Okay. See, I'm I'm a step ahead. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. But like this, the concept of of foregoing honor for personal glory is is really what the Ronin becomes when the civil wars break down feudal lordship. You just kind of have Samurai who want to fight that don't have a lord to fight for anymore, so they it's, just go around fighting. This is bored. I mean, yeah. that's really when you when you have warriors and you take away the war. What do you I mean, do with what them? What do you do with them? Yeah. How do you reintegrate them into society? Good I mean, luck we, with that. We try to do it now and still haven't figured it out. Two thousand years later, or or, or fifteen hundred years later. Mm-hmm. Um, we try to put them in similar positions, but it still doesn't always work out. Yeah. Or I you mean, put them in the exact opposite position, and it's like. They just can't. They can't do yeah, it. No, I mean you're you're trained for for one thing. That's mm-hmm. how it works, and then you take that away. But um, do you want to talk about uh, the five rings? Oh yes, Miyamoto Masashi and the five rings. So it's it's this. I it's really a, it's a philosophy. So Musashi is this undefeated Ronin duelist samurai of the the later period of that civil war, um, and he basically just roamed the countryside fighting anyone who he would fight and did so in a way that would be viewed as dishonorable because he's he's um, outwitting his opponents. Uh, like I, I remember reading about a couple different accounts of, of stories like showing up um, late to the first several duels that he fought, which aggravated individuals. So then they, they planned on him showing up late um, and so they had prepared a kind of ambush for him, and, and that time he happened to show up, like, hours early and was able to, like, thwart the ambush. Yeah. Or, or like, where he was tangled up in the Kusarigama's chain and where it would have eventually led to his death, he drew his short sword and threw it at, at the opponent, killing him. So instead of, you know, 
maintaining the honor of using his single weapon chosen for that duel, he mm. he pulled his extra weapon and threw it at him, yeah. winning the duel, but you know, to at what expense to one's honor. And then there's the duel with the the famous one with the I think he's like the Sasaki Kojiro is his name, the the devil of the western province or something like that. But he basically beats him to death with a wooden oar. I Jeez. mean, just shows up um, dirty and disheveled. I do remember that, yeah. And it angers Kojiro, who's like the pinnacle of samurai-hood. Mm. And so he rushes in without thinking, and that's what Musashi planned on. I mean, the Book of Five Rings is a philosophy of how to engage with everyone. I mean, it talks about swordsmanship and, and things like that, but it's also just an interaction, you know, how you can strategize about every interaction and prepare yourself, and, and not only that, but kind of lead your opponent or, or the interlocutor on the other side into wherever you want them. Mm. And we translate into the, the business world and, mm-hmm. and, and everything else you can. I mean, that's, uh, I need to read more with, uh, I definitely want to read the Book of Five Rings, which is, he wrote about... Yeah, um, supposedly while he was like in a self-imposed isolation in a cave. I, I don't know how much... Does everyone write in a cave? It seems like that's the... Whenever there's like something profound, people go to caves. They do. I, and you know, I, one thing I found interesting was the tie of like samurai to, to writing, to art, to literature, like studying those things, like things that you wouldn't normally associate with a warrior. Like the 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 comparability of wielding a sword to holding a brush for, for painting or for writing, just the discipline th- mm-hmm. that's required. So that, so it's kind of across, they're, they're cultured individuals. These samurai aren't just men given a sword. They're, they're kind of like this well-rounded, educated individual. Renaissance man. Yeah, of sorts, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, that will conclude our podcast. Uh, the cause of fear is ignorance. So this has been Mr. Shank. And Mr. Woods. And this was In the Back Room, and uh, thank you for listening. <laughs>